0: I'm Adam Cephew and I'm Scott Stern and
1: I think we're experienced now to go with the cold open.
0: Wow, here we go.
1: Our topic this week is bleeding disorders. A topic that I actually have to admit kind of intimidates me a little bit. Um, you're the expert today so do you have a case you're going to
0: throw at me? I do Unfortunately I don't feel so intimidated so you ready? <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. <laughs> Uh, our case is a patient uh, actually it was a family member I saw years ago who was at my house visiting and said hey Scotty I've got a bruise on my foot and I said okay let me take a look and she took off her shoe and there on the top of her foot was about a two inch bruise and I said okay so what'd you do to your foot she said nothing and I said what do you mean nothing. She said, I didn't do anything. I said, come on. And she goes, no, really, I don't remember anything. And she says, I have one on my thigh. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I should take a look. And I don't remember exactly how that transpired, but she proceeded to show me her thigh, which actually had like a three to four inch bruise on that. And again, had no recollection of any um, injury. And specifically, there's no history of any domestic abuse. Um, And the areas were not tender and she had no other abnormalities on her exam.
1: Okay, um, and when you felt these areas non-tender, and it sounds like they were not palpable.
0: Well, I don't remember if they were elevated a little bit because of the bruise. It certainly wasn't a mass okay. or something, and they were fairly It was a fairly to describe it somewhat more. Uh, it was a large, like ecchymosis. It was a, you know, relatively uniform, bluish, yellowish, greenish collection of blood that was under the skin. Okay,
1: and I guess my other two questions. Um, sounds like no petechiae that you saw. These were two big ecchymoses. Correct.
0: That's exactly right.
1: And this person had no other bleeding. What was it talking about? Her gums bleeding, her nose bleeds, or anything like right, that?
0: Right. Nothing. Just these two wacky things. Okay.
1: <laughs> so I, I asked about the, you know, palpable purpura to put vasculitis aside um, as we talk about bleeding disorders. So Given that these aren't palpable pur- purpura, that she doesn't have petechiae, eye, and that she sounds like she's well, I'm going to sort of put vasculitis aside and concentrate on bleeding disorders. That sounds right. And for me, I think of that as kind of either platelet disorders or coagulation disorders. Um, I'm sure you're going to get deep into differentials. My very rough way of thinking about that, which is I think probably how we all think about it, platelet disorders are, are abnormalities of production abnormalities of destruction, increased destruction, or sequestration, basically hypersplenism. And then on the coagulation side, it's either kind of congenital or acquired coagulation disorders. So, in this lady, you know, I would say common things being common, I think about trauma, though it sounds like you kind of ruled that out, and ITP, you know, young healthy woman, all of a sudden with easy bruising, ITP would be high on the list. Um, I guess, I mean... I, we're always taught that thrombocytopenia, that low platelet counts, are kind of petechia and mucosal bleeding, which this person doesn't have, but I'm pretty sure those are not that specific, so I think that's still a real possibility. Though certainly bruising like this, you think about coagulation disorders, um, I doubt they're congenital, presenting it, what you say, 42, Right. Um, and so it would be an acquired coagulation disorder. So, I don't know, maybe that's like a new factor inhibitor or something. I would start the way it all st- way start, I guess, if there's not more in the history of physical with a CBC, platelet count, differential, and then coags, an INR, and a PTT would be how I'd start. Right.
0: I right. think that's right. Okay. So
1: despite being intimidated, I'm not that far off to begin with. I guess you'll see if you come back and so, fully later.
0: So it. your leading thoughts then of, uh, would be ITP on the platelet disorder side and on the coagulation side, a n- newly acquired factor inhibitor, right? Right.
1: right. But, and, but I reserve the the, <laughs> the right to change that if you start telling me other stuff.
0: Well, I think that's right. And as we find with these lab abnormality uh, podcasts that we're doing, it's often a series of tests that guide you down. Right, right. And it's good to have an overview. View, so you have a sense, but then it's one test that often leads the way to the others. But I think a CBC with diff a platelet count, and an uh, INR, and a PTT are absolutely the way to go.
1: Okay, so let's step away from this case for a few minutes, take the old deep dive into bleeding disorders. Um, can you give us our five points about how to think about the diagnosis?
0: I can. So you've already mentioned the first one, which is separating off the platelet disorders, which can be both thrombocytopenic and occasional platelet dysfunction disorders from the coagulopathy. And as you've already alluded to, you know, we are taught that um, the platelet disorders are mucosal bleeding and the coagulation disorders are deep bleeding. I don't know that the data for that is very good. Okay. Um, and so I do what you do whenever I see these, which is get CBC with their platelet count and PT and uh, PTT uh, because I don't really trust that classic teaching and if you know it's just those are so simple to do not to do them is kind of um, crazy so that's our first step um you want to ask them about of course like you've already suggested where else is the bleeding and the other point we'll make which you've already made actually is we one really needs to distinguish petechial bleeding and palpable purpura from the other causes because then you think about vasculitis which is a different animal
1: it would be interesting to know, this I, This tends to happen a lot on these podcasts, I think. I mean, we can freely admit that we do a little preparation for these, so we're <laughs> sharp. But then questions always come up. Um, I imagine that petechiae are specific for platelet abnormalities, but not sensitive. When we think about platelet right. versus coagulation abnormalities, right. um, certainly you see, you see petechiae with vasculitides as well. Right. Um, I have no idea if there's even data for that. We can look it up.
0: Right. We'll have to get back to you on that in our next podcast. Um, So that's our first point. And then our second point will be in patients with thrombocytopenia, as you mentioned, you have to uh, distinguish disorders of where there's inadequate platelet production from disorders where there's destruction. The must-not-miss production problem is, of course, the leukemias and the other diseases that infiltrate the bone marrow. And so, fortunately, these are uncommon. But one always gets a CBC with diff to look for abnormal white cells, blasts. Um, the other things that can suggest a marrow process would be teardrop forms on the red cells. Unfortunately, those are rare, and we don't see them uh, very often. Other causes of um, decreased production are much more common. For instance, chemotherapy. Um, obviously in the inpatient side, that's very common, alcohol abuse, although not normally life-threatening thrombocytopenia, often thrombocytopenia in the 80,000 range, HIV infection, and then the vitamin deficiencies, both folic acid and B12, and all those can result in thrombocytopenia there from decreased production. Good, good. Um, destruction can also result in thrombocytopenia, and you've already mentioned the most common one, which are the immune-mediated thrombocytopenias, which can be either idiopathic or those associated with connective tissue diseases like lupus. Um, there's TTP, you know, that combination of often associated with neurological disease, fever, and uremia due to the, the, uh, antibody to TS-13, Um, hemolytic uremic syndrome, and DIC. And normally to get at that, if you think there's a destructive process and you don't see any evidence of a production problem, you can get antiplatelet antibodies. Uh, You can check for the antibody to ADAMS-TS13. And you can also look for connective tissue antibodies like the ANA. Sure.
1: And usually I, I think about those as being very different in how they present. You know, ITP to me is always kind of outpatient, very benign presentation. If some people come to the emergency room with it, it's often that they just don't have other modes of seeking healthcare. While TTP is pretty much always, for me, an emergency room inpatient kind of diagnosis with people who are sick, because they not only have thrombocytopenia, they have a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and often other symptoms as well.
0: That's absolutely true, and also true for DIC. Um, right. HUS can present as an outpatient. As a matter of fact, I saw my first adult ever uh, present with HUS two weeks ago. Really? He came in with a migratory polyarthralgus on crutches, a 20 some odd year old guy. Right. And I said, Do you have any rashes? And he said, Well, actually, yes. And he pulled down his pants. He had petechial rashes on his lower extremities. My teeth almost fell out. Wow. That doesn't happen very often. Um, where are we? Third point. Okay. <laughs> so um, having covered the thrombocytopenias, the, the next point is to think about coagulopathies. And the first step is, as you've also mentioned, is to develop familial from acquired. That's not normally hard. You know, if it's familial, it also means it's congenital. So often there's a history of lifelong problems with bleeding, problems with surgery, problems with menses, problems with getting your teeth pulled, or there might be other family members with it. Um, Whereas, of course, uh, none of those are expected with the um, acquired uh, coagulopathies.
1: I guess it is probably worth saying that you have to ask the questions, because von Willebrand's is one of those things where often the bleeding is mild, often it is around, you know, having teeth pulled, around childbirth, things like that. And so it might be that if you don't ask the question, you don't know about it.
0: Totally. I mean, you can imagine a woman having childbirth and she got a unit of blood or two units of blood. Nobody thought that much about it. Totally. That's absolutely a good point. Um, Now, if you had a coagulopathy and it didn't seem like it was familial, then you need to think about the acquired coagulopathies. And one test that's really worth um, emphasizing here is the mixing study. Yeah. So acquired disorders can be due to either deficiencies of the various coagulation factors or because they're getting inhibited. And the inhibitors are often very dangerous and life threatening. You have to identify those. So um, rather than ordering $5 billion worth of tests, there's this relatively simple test called a mixing study. And what they do with that is they mix the patient's plasma with normal plasma. And it turns out, interestingly enough, if you have a deficiency, that mixing one-to-one with normal plasma, it gives the person enough factors in the tube, that is, for it to correct. So even if they have a deficiency and then none of that factor, like they had hemophilia, if you mix it with normal plasma, it would correct enough to correct the PT, uh, PTT rather. Um, on the other hand, inhibitors are normally potent enough that when you mix it, the inhibitors also inhibit the normal plasma. So non-correction in a mixing study suggests an inhibitor. Correction suggests that you had a deficiency.
1: And I think most of what we see these days are inhibitors because the deficiencies just in a population which is generally well-nourished, I'd say other than maybe vitamin K deficiency, most of the time when we're seeing a coagulopathy on the inpatient service, um, which has made the person sick, maybe I'll add to it. I'm almost expecting there to be an inhibitor.
0: With the one exception I'll say, because you're, you're automatically doing this in your head, yeah. is liver disease. So sure. if people comes in with advanced liver disease, they can have deficiencies, and, but you would automatically jump to that conclusion. Absolutely, good point. Um, and the last point is if you don't find anything in platelet number and it looks normal and the coags look normal, um, it's worth thinking about platelet function. And so there's a variety of platelet function abnormalities. Um, you know, aspirin and NSAIDs are clearly the most common. Uremia is another. Von Willebrand's disease is yet another. And for that, there's a test that PFO-100 has basically replaced the old bleeding study that we used to have where we stabbed people and saw how long it took them to stop bleeding, which turned out not to be very reproducible.
1: With a piece of filtered paper, remember that you turn around and like, you turn it every five minutes and see how many blood spots. Oh, it's just
0: that was a crazy test.
1: <laughs> okay, let's get back to our case. Okay. Um, so at that point, um, we'd heard the history, we'd heard the physical. I asked for a CBC, platelets, diff, and a an INR and a PTT.
0: Well, let me start off by telling you the INR and the PTT were normal, ah, okay. So and her CBC was normal, save for the platelet count of 7,000. Okay.
1: Um, so I, my differential actually really narrows at this point. So this has sort of pushed the coagulation disorders out of the way. This is clearly related to platelets. Um, I would have been all over that had it been uh, petechiae, but I'll accept it at this point. And here with a healthy, younger woman with what sounds like an isolated thrombocytopenia, ITP has to be high up on the list at this point. And I think one of the things that I was going to talk about later is that, you know, you don't need a bone marrow biopsy for ITP. So you'd want to look at the smear. You'd want to make sure that nothing is being missed. Um, and at that point, you know, we're probably close to making a diagnosis.
0: We are close. Um, that's right. And so it gets to your point earlier that it was harder to predict. You wouldn't have predicted necessarily from the textbooks that the platelet disorder would cause the big bruising, but it gets to our earlier conversation. So if you thought it was ITP, are there any tests that you could do? And the answer that's yes, there are antiplatelet antibodies. Which were positive. And then the question becomes is this isolated, if you will, idiopathic immune thrombocytopenia, right. or is it related to some underlying process? Would you do any other testing for her?
1: I don't know. Would I?
0: We did. What did you do? We did an ANA, which was positive, okay. and actually the anti RNP was very, very oh. high. Interesting. Um, and so she was eventually diagnosed with immune thrombocytopenia purpura uh-huh. due to a connective tissue disease. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, mixed connective tissue disease yeah, yeah, specifically. Yeah,
1: yeah. Interesting. Develop any other symptoms of? The you mixed know, in tissues?
0: retrospect, a little bit. She's yeah. got a little bit of pulmonary symptoms, yeah. which has been called asthma in the past. Right. Um, a little bit of joint aching, aches and pains, but you know, nothing that would have caught attention in the sure. absence of the thrombocytopenia. Sure. Interesting.
1: Interesting. And I guess that. You know, usually when we think about treating ITP, real idiopathic um, thrombocytopenia, um, we're talking about steroids, people who don't respond to steroids, splenectomy. I guess if there's another um, autoimmune syndrome, it may change to more specific right. therapy. Yeah,
0: that. she definitely got, um, st- they they gave her a pulse steroids right away because her platelet count got as low as 2,000. Yeah. Right. They were getting pretty nervous. Right,
1: right. And of course, people with ITP, seldom have terrible bleeding because we sort of think of them as superstar platelets. There. Right.
0: Well, they're fresh, right? And so that seems to be the advantage. They may have six of
1: them, but the six they have all work really Boy, well. you're
0: holding on to those six. Okay,
1: so we're going to move on um, to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Scott, would you like to begin enlightening us with some fingerprints? Well, I
0: would if there were any. Yes. Unfortunately, we've already decided that petechiae and purpura don't really distinguish... Uh, the different types of bleeding disorders. And the fact of the matter is, uh, the best I know, there's not physical exam findings which are diagnostic in right. this particular uh, disorder, which is why our lab studies are, have formed the key of the right. crux of our conversation. Right,
1: and sort of so, recognize it, know where you start the lab evaluation, and then know where to go from there, or look up where to go from there right. once you have those abnormal results. Perfect. I know where you
0: could look that up, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, common misconceptions.
0: All right. So one common misconception is about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So there's often a concern with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia that patients in the hospital are going to bleed from it and that one should stop the heparin and then just watch and see how they do. And the reality is that's not the case, that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is caused when you develop an antibody that causes platelet aggregation. And the platelet aggregation is the problem. The platelet aggregation can cause thrombosis and stroke. And so, if this diagnosis is made, not only do you need to get them off the heparin, which is the trigger, but you also need to add some other anticoagulation that's not a heparinoid and that works right away, even if the initial indication for anticoagulation is no longer thought to be important.
1: Right, absolutely, and also it's heparinoid. So if the person was on unfractionated heparin, anoxaparin is not appropriate. Right. they are generally talking about things like argatroban. Well,
0: that's you not- can also use the, the you can use the NOACs now yeah, too. Yeah.
1: Good. Um, so, my common misconception is actually something I threw out before: is is that ITP demands a bone marrow um, to make the diagnosis. Often, if the clinical picture is correct, if there aren't other lab abnormalities, and if antiplatelet antibodies, especially, are positive, you've made the diagnosis. I think when bone marrow biopsies happen is when ITP presents sort of in people it shouldn't present in, right? In older people. Um, or when you have other cell lines which are affected, um, which has to raise your concern uh, for a bone marrow Totally.
0: Process. The Y count's 3,000, the hematocrit's 30, and all of a sudden you're like, well, this looks like a more diffuse marrow process. Right,
1: and it's a good point. that It doesn't mean that you're seeing 50% blasts. It might mean that the person has a little bit of leukopenia, a little bit of anemia, something like that.
0: Right, I'm just going to emphasize that further. So le- leukemia means there's a bone marrow malignancy, right. and those cells may or may not be in the periphery. Right. So that's a good point. Um, My other common misconception is actually, I love this, the lupus anticoagulant, I I like to call the ultimate medical oxymoron because there's nothing about that name that's correct. It's not only associated with lupus and not only is it not only associated with lupus it's not an anticoagulant it's a procoagulant, and so it's often discovered accidentally when people get screening labs for surgery uh the ptt is elevated people are worrying if they're bleeding and then you take a careful history and you hear there's been a history of a clot in the past or miscarriages in the past and you need to think about uh ordering the appropriate anti studies to look to see if they have the lupus anticoagulant and whether they'll lead to anticoagulation despite the fact that PTT is long.
1: I'm trying to bite my tongue here, but I don't think I can. Go ahead. I think it is, lupostanacol, I agree, is like the worst name in the world, but I don't think that's an oxymoron. Hmm.
0: <laughs> I should have known not to say that to you. So <laughs> let's see. What would be the right expression? I think just
1: a misnomer.
0: Let's okay, there it. we go. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to get you for that. Go ahead.
1: Uh, <laughs> pet, pet peeves we're up to. Anything Anything piss you off <laughs> <laughs> the back well, the mountains. Not much. I
0: guess the only thing that I see all the time that I roll my eyes at is, um you know, the elderly bruise all the time. yeah, And they're always worried. And it's a combination of very thin skin, bad protein, often being on anti-platelet agents, often having been on steroids. And they come in and their hands are a mess and they're always worried that something's wrong and yeah. there's almost never anything right. wrong.
1: Right. Senile purpura, right? Like right. Very common usually on the forearms is where I'm sort
0: of used to Right, exactly. And
1: it's that thin skin without great collagen underneath and kind of any sheer injury causes bleeding. Wounds.
0: I seem to remember I had a bruise recently and you told me that's what I had. <laughs> I may have done that. <coughs> um, yeah,
1: In a way, you know, easy bruising in the clinic is almost like night sweats. It's one of those things that... You know, we learn that it's bad, it can be bad, but for the most part, it's nothing. It is
0: true. For the most part, it's nothing. Right. I mean, I was actually surprised, frankly, when her platelet count was 7,000, because I right. actually figured... This is nothing. I said, look, she wasn't even my patient. I said, you got to go have your doctor do this right yeah. away. But I was... in the thought in the back of my head was, yeah, you have to do it right away, but I bet you it's going to be normal. Yeah, and it wasn't.
1: <laughs> um, my, my pet peeve is something that's actually come up a few times in my career, it's ignoring an abnormal INR or PP or PTT um, in a preoperative evaluation. Now, you know I think everybody knows that there's no real reason to do pre-op blood testing in like just about everybody right Um, unless it's going to be an enormous surgery or unless the person has risk factors or signs or symptoms or whatever Um, but very often in today's world you know labs have been done in the past or the person is in the hospital and has had labs done and then people ignore an abnormal INR or a prolonged PTT and that's really a mistake because maybe it's something silly and the person's a little bit malnourished and their vitamin K is abnormal, or maybe they have some mild liver disease, so their, their factors are, are abnormal. But A, that's an easy thing to fix before surgery. But I've seen a couple of times in my career where people have had um, acquired factor deficiencies usually because of an inhibitor and if you bring someone to a major surgery unable to clot that's a disaster and and say so, you know if you're going to draw the labs you got to pay attention to the results
0: well we could say that for every single one of these podcasts right. And you're making a huge mistake when you decide arbitrarily to ignore things that you don't understand right. um, that's just a, that's a ticket for the uh, actual malpractice attorneys they love those so don't do that
1: don't ignore things you can't understand
0: that is a good point
1: that might be a a life a
0: piece of life recommendation. There we go. Okay. Some
1: general right. mentorship from Dr. That Yeah,
0: not using oxymorons inappropriately. <laughs> um, All right, pearls? Clinical pearls. What do you got? Okay, so the major thing we've touched on now twice, I think, but we'll say it a third time, is when you see people with palpable purpura, particularly if they look sick to you, that's a panic button. Uh, that's often a sign of septicemia, it can be a sign of meningococcemia, those people can be dead in a day. So when you see that, they need to be admitted. And what you really need to do immediately is draw blood cultures and get them antib- antibiotics immediately. And I really mean immediately. It's, a, it's an emergency because for meningococcemia, even with immediate treatment, even a patient who's normal tensive, they can still die while you treat them.
1: Right. Fever at a rash, um, interesting, sometimes bad fever and signs of bleeding vasculitis pretty much always bad and you need to take that super seriously Um, and maybe actually you know maybe maybe my pearl won't go into that if you're going to talk about meningococcemia i'm going to talk about ttp go ahead um So TTP is just one of those diagnoses which, you know, I don't know, as an internist, as a generalist, you know, it's got to be on your mind um, when you're seeing people. TTP requires thrombocytopenia and uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. Um, It doesn't require the other things, okay? It doesn't require fever, mental status changes, renal um, kidney injury, um, all of those things. Um, But you have to be suspicious of it because... You can't wait for the diagnostic test, right? You gotta treat it early. We treat it with um, plasma exchange, and while we wait for the Adam TS13, my favorite acronym, I might add, um, <laughs> you need to be treating people. And you know the hematologists are always interested in this. So if you're concerned, you know, call your local hematologist and say I'm concerned about TTP because of X, Y, and Z, and they're going to be all over it.
0: So do you like Adam's TS13 because it goes around cleaving things? You do realize it cleaves the mom Willowbrand factor, yes, don't I we? Yes, I do realize that.
1: Maybe I do like that. It sounds kind of tough. Okay, so we hope you would enjoyed this episode 13 of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast. Hope you guys found it a bit useful as well. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations, The book is available in print through all the usual places, on your mobile device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide through mcgraw Hill. Scott, I think you've recently done some work on the website? They've um, done a great job on the
0: website. So the book is much more searchable than it has been in the past. I'd encourage people who've tried to look for things in the past to go back and try again. If one goes to the table of contents and clicks on chapters, it's now very easy to go to the various diseases and then go to either the classic presentation, the evidence-based diagnosis, the treatment, and so on. Uh, it's, It's quite nimble now. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
1: A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez.